Hello and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features Neil Kinnock, one of the greatest ever leaders in Labour history, one of the biggest stars in British political history. This episode is very, very special. And I'll tell you now, it does get quite emotional, so just brace yourself, because Neil is a man of immense heart and it really comes out during the show. Before I come on to the phenomenal Neil Kinnock, uh, thank you for all your emails. Don't forget you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, Neil has featured in so many of these emails, and I totally forgot to, to mention this to him. What a wasted opportunity. I'm sure, I hope I can get Neil back on the show again at some point in the future where I can see if he remembers any of these. Uh, but Mitchell has been in touch. He said, thank you for the podcast. My partner and I loved watching the episode with Angela Rayner live at the Duchess. Well, what a night that was. He said, I wanted to tell you about the time I met Theresa May. I was, work I was working at Millbank Tower. Amazing. The political history in that building. Um, and it was a very long day after the European elections in 2019. I was coming down the fire stairs, putting on my gloves and wrapping on a scarf, when I was sidetracked, probably looking for my umbrella, as I came out of the door and proceeded to walk straight into a man who was standing in the foyer. As we were collecting ourselves, I looked over to see the Prime Minister watching and looking slightly bemused. It turned out I'd just taken out one of Theresa May's security officers. I apologised and scarpered. Mitchell, I don't think you realise how close you came to either arrest or potentially death. This is a far scarier story than you have written it up as. If you've ever bumped into a member of special branch or come close to being accosted by the Prime Minister or indeed a Cabinet Minister's security detail, then let me know, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Now, another thank you to everyone who's come to see me on tour so far. My new tour, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, continues around the UK. Uh, I'm in Stafford this Friday, the 11th of March, and then I go on to, oh, I cannot wait, Newcastle, Stand, on Tuesday the 15th of March, Hexham Queen's Hall on the 16th of March, Annick or Ornick Alnwick Playhouse on the 17th of March. Oh my word, such amazing gigs, all of those. And I'm looking forward to them. Uh, Stafford on the 11th is at the Gatehouse Theatre. I, I mean, I, these are some of my favourite gigs and I've done some phenomenal ones recently. As in, I'm not bigging myself up, I'm just saying the atmosphere at these gigs has been very special. The Chorley Little Theatre and the Salford Lowry are two of the best gigs I've ever done. And, and I, I'm not saying that to, you know, what I mean is the atmosphere at those gigs was very, very special. So thank you to all of those of you who came uh, and thank you to all of you who were coming to see me on tour. Now, of course, you can also come and see the political party live. Uh, this show was recorded at the Duchess Theatre. It is recorded every fortnight. I now have, I've booked up a lot of the guests for the coming weeks and months. So get a pad and pen or just go to my Twitter feed at Matt Ford. But here are, I mean, I, these are astounding guests. So here are the guests for the coming weeks and months. There's a couple of gaps um, where I'm, I'm very, been able, very close to being able to confirm, but these are the confirmed guests. So here we go. Monday, the 21st of March, Tom Tugendhat. Now, Tom is an exceptional politician. He's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He's been an absolute star on dealing with Russia, China, uh, our withdrawal from Afghanistan. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he uses that personal experience as well as his great political skill to really hold the government to account. Uh, he's already said that he will stand in a future Conservative leadership contest. He is a potential Prime Minister of the future. You've got to come and see him. He's amazing. That's on Monday, the 21st of March. Two weeks after that, on Monday, the 4th of April, I'm joined by James Cleverley. James is a Foreign Office Minister. You'll know who he is. 
He's absolutely brilliant. He's been on the show before. He's one of the funniest guests I've ever had on. He's always very candid, um, always straight talking, uh, and also really sharp as well. And of course, given everything that's going on, having a foreign office minister on the show is a real coup. So that will be a fantastic night. Two weeks, oh no, a week after that, sorry. It's the rescheduled Christmas special with Jacob Rees-Mogg and Rosanna Allen Khan. I mean, I really don't need to add anything more about that. That's going to be bonkers. On Monday, the 18th of April, my guest will be Rosie Duffield. Rosie has become an absolute heroine to so many people across politics. She talked very movingly uh, about her own experience of domestic violence in the House of Commons. One of the most incredible moments, really, in in House of Commons history. And she's become a real hero uh, to women for standing up for women's rights, um, often uh, in the face of incredible abuse. Um, so she is a real modern day hero. That will be incredible. On Monday, the 16th of May, Lisa Nandy comes on the show. Of course, Lisa stood for the uh, Labour leadership. She was Shadow Foreign Secretary. She's now Shadow Secretary of State for levelling up. Tip to be a future leader. She's an absolute star. On Monday, the 13th of June, I will be joined by England and Manchester United legend, and now member of the Labour Party, Gary Neville. Obviously, that will be um, a slightly different night. Of course, it will be political, but what a novelty that's going to be. I'm a huge fan of Gary Neville, as you may have gathered from previous bits of material on this podcast. I cannot wait for that. And on Monday, the 27th of June, my guest is the first ever Secretary of State for exiting the European Union, the first cabinet minister to resign over the Chequers deal, and, of course, the man who called on Boris Johnson to resign at the end of that stormy PMQs a few weeks ago, David Davis. He... I mean, he's been involved in so many big moments in recent British history. He's always a phenomenal guest. He's a fantastic talker. I mean, that what a lineup that is. Uh, and I've got a few more. I'm on the verge of confirming. Uh, you can get all the tickets for those. Either go to uh, mattford.com and they're all listed in the political party segment of the website or go to the NIMAX um, link that I've put in the blurb. An incredible lineup of guests. But on to today's guest. And this is a very, very special recording. Neil Kinnock's been on the show before, um, about seven years ago. And that was one of the great classic episodes of this podcast. This appearance incredibly manages to top it. Neil, obviously, is a hero to so many of us, regardless of where you stand on politics, where you stand in politics. He is one of British politics' great orators and did so much in ridding the Labour Party last time of its hard left elements, at huge personal cost to himself, but done in such an articulate and passionate way. And this interview demonstrates all the things that people love about Neil Kinnock. His sharp wit, his warmth, his generosity of spirit, his phenomenal intellect, twinned with a vocabulary that so few people possess, but also a huge heart. And uh, I'm emotional thinking about it. This does become emotional because Neil is a man who cares about the world so much. And there's a moment towards the end where someone in the audience says something to him and, and it just becomes a, um, a very emotional moment. So I'm going to leave you with uh, the stand-up section from the start and then with the interview with Neil Kinnock. But this is very, very special. Obviously, uh, tonight's show takes place against the backdrop of some very bad news. Nottingham Forest have just conceded <laughs> a goal in the FA Cup fifth round to uh, Huddersfield. Watch it. Oh, hold on a sec. Fucking hell, it's not question time. Jesus Christ. Please call the number on the bottom of your screen. We're in Peterborough next week. 
Uh, but there we are, Forrester losing one now. People reacting very badly to this. Obviously, there is uh, bigger news going on in Ukraine. Uh, but Vladimir Zelensky, the leader of Ukraine, uh, an absolute hero. And, of course, a stand-up comedian. Um, so, you know, you never know where people can end up. <laughs> Part of me did think, I wonder if we'll get an Edinburgh show out of this. Uh, Clive Myrie, the BBC star who's been reporting from Ukraine, has been doing a fantastic job. Give a brilliant interview to The Times today where he's really had a go at people who spread fake news. I've got some of the quotes here and these are absolutely sensational. He said, I can be held accountable for every word I put on air. Some dick in his basement putting up rubbish cannot be held accountable. <laughs> the false equivalence of those who liken Russia's invasion of Ukraine to the West going into Iraq is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and this is the best bit. I don't want to hear guff from some jerk on GB News saying while he doesn't trust Putin, he doesn't trust the mainstream media either. Fuck people like him. <laughs> what a, all the news should be delivered like that from now on. This is the news at 10, coming up the headlines, but if you don't believe them, you can suck my cock. <laughs> You're listening to the Today programme. I just want to address one of our listeners directly, Gary from Essex, who emails me regularly, calling me a page shill for the Illuminati. Gary, you can fuck yourself. And let me just say this, I know where you live. And one day, I am gonna come round there, rip off your head and shit down your neck. <laughs> It's 7.45, here's Rob Bonnet with a sport. Uh, Tony Blair, of course, giving an interview to the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, on BBC Sounds, you can listen to it, where he's asked if he feels guilt about the uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, you might not be surprised to hear that Tony says something like, yeah, well, I, I did what I thought was right at the time, and, yeah, I had to live with that. Yeah. Uh, which is what, I mean, what, what do people expect him to say? No, don't feel anything. I, you know, I get a good 11 hours kip a night. Uh, <laughs> barely think about it, to be honest. So. There we are. <laughs> and uh, Nigel Farage. I mean, if you want to know how mad politics is about to get in the next few years, this is a terrifying glimpse of the future. Nigel Farage has said he wants another referendum, but this time on net zero. This is what the libertarian right of the Tories in UK and all those people on GB News are pushing now is we should have a referendum on whether we achieve net zero or not. Now, this is just, non, this is just people who just want the constant cycle of a fight. I mean, for, if you think of Farage's lifestyle, he smokes fags all day, drinks real ale and eats sausages. I mean, just the, the stench of his real ale farts and compacted sausage meat. Net zero is a direct attack on his arsehole. No wonder he's dead against it. But he's, he's, he's done this tragic whole campaign where he says, we need to take back control of our lives and energy bills. <laughs> it's so sad when he's like, take back control is his little catchphrase. It's like when you see an, an actor using their famous catchphrase in an advert. I'll be back for great pizza. You just think, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> That's more the level Farage should be at. It's time to take back control of your bladder. And thanks to Tenement Pants, I've got my freedom back. I didn't just want to go to war and defeat a continent, I wanted to defeat incontinence. Well, I got you on board in the end with the incontinence gear, didn't I? So, uh, 
That is, uh, I think I found the uh, sort of moral level of the room. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight obviously we have a very special guest. We had Michael Heseltine here a few weeks ago and it was absolutely sensational. I can't thank tonight's guest enough for gracing us with his presence. There's so much to talk about. Not just, of course, I wonder what uh, a man who led the Labour Party in the 1980s, whether he has any insights about dealing with a hard left... Uh, weirdos in the Labour Party. So uh, I'm, I'm sure Neil can muster up something about what's going on at the moment. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a wonderful audience. We're going to have a break, after which I hope to be able to report the Nottingham Forest are at least drawing against Huddersfield. Uh, I feel like uh, delivering that at the start of the night really took the wind out of the occasion. What? 2 1 to who? Forest. Are you kidding? Well, for, oh my God, apparently Forest are winning 2 1, which is great news, but it also suggests you've been on the phone throughout the whole first half. <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very, very special guest tonight. Uh, he was on the show seven years ago, and a lot has changed since then. Growing up, he was the biggest political figure of my political education, the first political idol I had, and he continues to be one of the wisest, most decent, and most compelling politicians and political voices in the country. He is a hero to so many people across this nation. He is a hero to me. Please give a huge welcome to Neil Kinnock! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome, Neil. <laughs> Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's very kind. And uh, although I can't see a damn thing, I, I sense that there's a fair number of chums here. <laughs> or, or comrades, as we used to call them. Yes. Comrades, yeah, is that a dirty word? No, uh, not for me. I think it means a hell of a lot, yeah. But I'd like to be choosy about who is and who really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> Am I a comrade? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, for instance, Tovarish Putin is not. Yeah. I've adopted his name, actually. I've referred to him in the last couple of weeks as Vladimir Pukin, <laughs> which I think, with just a K instead of a T, does the job, really. <laughs> he certainly has that effect on me, yeah. Well, talking of puking, we've got some whiskey here. Yeah, okay. Um, they don't automatically go together, you know. Only in excess. Well, let's see how we get on. Oh, okay. um, every guest has a drink. Neil uh, requested a single malt. So yes. Um, That's right. I didn't want one that was married, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to pour it, or shall I pour it? Uh, you pour it, please. Okay, Thanks. and how much would you like? Oh, not very much. Okay, you tell me one. Yes, by all means. <laughs> oh my god. It's like a stag do. Um, well, the point is, how do you choose that? You've got an audience, you're pouring whiskey, and if you don't put very much, they think, oh, he's a mean bastard. Yeah. I mean, uh, me, not you. Oh, I know, yeah, I get yeah, that. Yeah. I get that. You also, have had yeah. your tea. I was, uh, I've got a bit of what. Uh, there was another decanter that I was going to have some with, but I don't know where it is. Is it, is it around here? It's not John? a decanter, that's a. Oh, a tumbler, sorry. A tumbler. I tell you what, why don't I empty that like this? Oh, here we are. Thank you so much, Joe. Cheers. Oh, I was going to do the water trick then. <laughs> What's the water trick? Well, I tip it over you. Say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you can yes, do if you like. If it, I mean, if it gets a laugh, it's welcome. Is that good? That's very nice. I'll pop you some back in there. Oh, it's very nice. Glenmorangie. Do you know what? I don't usually drink during these, but I just felt 
When am I ever going to have the chance to have a whiskey with Neil, can I? Well, I, it, I tell you what, I haven't had a whiskey since about last Tuesday. I'm getting very abstemious in my old age. That's not all. Just before anybody realises it, I'd better show that I'm missing a front tooth. And there's a story behind it. 60 years ago this month, the day before my 20th birthday, uh, a medical student from Birmingham uh, in a rugby game kicked, well, meant to kick the ball, but actually kicked me in the face instead. Cracked the tooth, made me even bloody uglier than I even was then, and I've had it patched God knows how many times since, including by the genius dentist we've got at the moment. She's a lovely woman, a terrific dentist, and she's patched it and patched it. But eventually, last Thursday, wouldn't you know, it finally gave up the ghost. It'll be cured this Wednesday when I have denture. I have a denture. <laughs> but it's this Wednesday, so I said to Matt uh, beforehand, is, there's no television in this show, is there? <laughs> and he, he, he said, no. <laughs> thinking I was going to turn up with some kind of appalling disease. But I simply pointed out that I was missing my bloody tooth. And I mean, there's I, well, 32 teeth, and the one that had to be missing was the one in the front. Didn't you know? Isn't it funny that you're so, former Labour leader, injured in a rugby accident at school? Gordon Brown. Not in school. I wasn't in school when I was 20, for God's sake. Well, <laughs> even, even I managed to escape from that. <laughs> Okay, in your youth. In my youth. In your youth, uh, an injury on a rugby field. Yes. Gordon Brown. Oh, not like Gordon's. Gordon, injury. Gordon was, that was a dreadful injury. But isn't it a shame that Jeremy Corbyn never played rugby? <laughs> <laughs> His injuries were for others. <laughs> <laughs> so, Neil, what, what advice would you have to a Labour leader who has to deal with um, members of his parliamentary party that perhaps are spreading uh, pro-Russian sentiments? I think the best advice is retire so that you can reflect as a wise man on what Labour leaders should do. Because, <laughs> I mean, there, there is no, there's no guidebook, there's no, uh, there's no lexicon, there's no uh, means of guidance. Uh, you have to follow instinct and judgment, which is what you're there for in any case. And I actually think that Keir Starmer's instinct uh, and his judgment are working very well, um, particularly so far as leading the party against the Tories is concerned. And where he is distracted, and it is a distraction, a serious distraction, by the operations antics of some in the party, uh, he deals with it in a pretty unassuming way, but firmly, directly, quickly. And I think that's the only way to deal with it. It's unfortunate. He'd rather he didn't have to do it. I'm certain of that, just as I would have preferred not to. But the thing is that it's essential for the credibility of the Labour Party, not just to those that we're hoping are going to come to us, but for those who have already committed themselves to us. Those millions of Labour voters they want this party to take itself seriously. 
and that means that it has to be an orderly, patriotic, forward-looking, constructive party of justice. And if it can focus entirely on that, its absolutely genuine core beliefs, then it can win. If it's constantly distracted by having to fight on two fronts against the real enemy and against those who would like power in the Labour Party more than power for the Labour Party, then that diminishes and divides the party. And it's a shame. It's a shame. The, the parallels between you and he are, are kind of clear, and people often refer to him in the same breath as you. If not only that, you both took over after Labour had suffered a terrible defeat yeah. after the party had been led by the hard left of the party. But also, obviously, your phenomenal speech in 1985 at the Labour Party conference where you're dealing with the heckles and the boos, when Keir Starmer last addressed the Labour Party, really seems that we haven't seen... Very different to 1985, but nevertheless, seems we haven't seen since you were Labour leader where the conference hall or a minority in it are, are giving him abuse. Did, was it... When you watched Keir Starmer, as I'm sure you did, getting heckled by elements of the hard left, was it, did it make you feel nostalgic or was it triggering? <laughs> no, I... <laughs> no, I, I was full of admiration at his uh, calmness. And, uh, well, you can hardly call it fire... But certainly, <laughs> in spite of distraction, he remained cool and calm. That's one of his great strengths. It's certainly a strength I didn't have. I mean, in a, in a tight spot, I can be cool. Uh, because in any kind of fight, the worst thing you can do for yourself is lose your temper, become blind to consequences, and lash out. So you've got to stay cool. But temperamentally... Uh, Kia, to his credit, is a very grown-up, mature, cool customer. Whereas maybe I lack in several of those areas. Um, but uh, anyway, I can, I can say it's not all that bad because I'm 80 and bugger it. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you led the party in very different times. Keir is leading it absolutely post New Labour, even though there's a, you know, been a, a sort of trough since then. But in the 80s, I mean, not only was politics different, society was different. Uh, the culture of the Labour Party was way more confrontational, physically way more confrontational. <laughs> you, you couldn't have... I mean, New Labour couldn't have happened without what you did in 1985. Um, well, that's what, uh, that's what a lot of people say. I, really, I suppose it's summed up in... Roy Huddersley's very generous phrase when he said Kinnock made the Labour Party electable. And then I was obliged to add, uh, yep, but Tony Blair got it elected, and there's a <laughs> hell of a difference. And uh, uh, Tony was kind enough to say, and Gordon and others, that uh, they were only able to secure the attention that they got and the support that they earned uh, because, and they never use this phrase, but this is what boils down to, they didn't have the distractions. They could present a, an authentically united party that had eventually, thank God, got weary with losing <laughs> and was determined to win. And that is a gift to any leader. And it's, I, John Smith would have won... Maybe not exactly the majority that Tony won, but nevertheless, we would have won 
in 97. And one of the reasons, and I'm quite proud of this, it wasn't the conclusive reason, it wasn't the dominant reason, but one of the reasons was we had a party that was not regimented, but was prepared to discipline itself, which is the essence of any kind of victorious party, army, or any other assembly, a team, a football team that disciplines itself and wants to win and to maximize the use of its assets and its skills. They deserve to win, and they do win. But those things are only possible if people in positions of power and leadership take the decisions, often painful decisions, often personally painful decisions, to make that change. And no one did more in Labour history than you did to confront the hard left in a way... I mean, you talk about the way Keir Starmer's doing it, and obviously he's facing the hard left in a different way. For you, I mean, this was an absolute war of attrition. And if you didn't have your character, your guts, your strengths, the Labour Party might not even exist now. I mean, more than anyone in Labour's history, you saved it. Well, that's very kind of you. Will you marry me? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. You've just been nicer to me in the last five minutes than Glenys has been in 60 years. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't forget, first of all, and and this isn't said often enough, I did have a party that I could work to unify and restore its sense of purpose and confidence. And the reason that I had that was because of Michael Foote. He endured purgatory. He didn't want the job. I tried to persuade him not to take the job. And when he eventually accepted the arguments, trade union leaders mainly, plus Ian McCart and one or two others, uh, and agreed to run, I said, OK, you know I'm against you running, because I don't think you can win. And if you do win, it'll be bloody dreadful, unimaginable. And with this show that we've got chasing you around. But uh, I'll manage a campaign, which I did, and to his astonishment, my astonishment, Dennis Healy's astonishment, he actually won. But I knew then, I'd known before then, even when Jim was leader, we were going to have to undertake fundamental changes. Most importantly, not because as policy changes themselves, they had necessity and validity, but to alter a mindset which had settled for opposition. I don't mean the councillors who were fighting against the cuts and doing their damnedest to provide what I call the dented shield to protect their communities and the vital services. Uh, They they understood, they were on side because they were faced with the realities all the time. But they were legions of Labour Party members who could not by any measure be thought of as the ultra-left or dafties or nasties of any description. And they certainly weren't in sectarian groups. But they just got used to the idea of not winning. And that mindset had to be changed to show that they could win and it was worth doing, but it took a lot of bloody effort. And fortunately... As the years went past, as the battles were won, as the policies changed, as the constitution was shifted, 
uh, as some of the nastier ones were booted out, and others came to terms with what was going on. Uh, by the time we got to 92, then we had a really formidable force. But, of course, electorates have memories, and it only had to be suggested to them that our preoccupation with, with ourselves and our policy changes were cosmetic and not authentic, and enough of them were prepared to withhold their support and even vote for nice Mr. Major. So that's, that was the story. And I always knew that was the danger. I used to say to our people when we had a drink after a particular win of some kind, a majority on the NEC, or the defeat of some particularly crazy resolution in a regional policy conference, or things of that nature, I'd say, yep, the bloody problem is that every time we go after them, every time we beat them, it just reminds everybody how bloody divided we are. <laughs> and the risk has got to be taken because we've got to get the Labour Party back on the democratic socialist keel. But nevertheless, recognise it is a risk. You led the party from 83 to 92. Yeah. Too bloody long. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. I, um, one of the best analysts, um, Steve, um, uh, writer, writes for The Independent. Oh, Guardian. Steve Richards. Steve Richards. One of the best. He's encyclopedic and, a, you know, profound thinker. And Steve concludes in the book that he published last year, I think it was, that I could never make, make it because I'd been doing the job for nine years. I think he's probably right. And, but is, what do you mean is that you'd been around as leader of the opposition for too long and that was basically your persona was set, that in the public's mind, oh, he's the guy who leads the opposition, he's not the prime minister. That's right. That and the other drip drip over the nine years, and it, this isn't whinging, it's a matter of historic record of the perpetual attack, not in editorials, but in even gossip columns and cartoons and even in so-called news columns, uh, the use of this or that adjective um, cumulatively. No single attack has much effect. Cumulatively, there were swathes of people, decent people, people who ended up voting Labour in 97, who just thought that uh, I was an over-promoted dickhead uh, with... <laughs> perpetually looking for a fight, because I was a boy from the valley, you see, and you're much more likely to find me in the Royal Opera House up the road here than you were in any bloody bar, but that didn't matter. That didn't matter. Anyway, so, I'm, so that's my moan of the way. <laughs> but when you say about certain adjectives, obviously the particular phrases, one uh, alliterative one that comes to mind, that was very unfair, that was basically nationalist and classist, really, um, about being Welsh... I mean, in a way, now, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure that a politician wouldn't go through that again, necessarily, but, I mean, that's as close to them <coughs> basically being racist as they could get away with. Well, it's interesting you say that it's racist and class-bound, because the term Welsh windbag wasn't invented by the Times or the Sun. It was invented by the Socialist Workers' Party. <laughs> and... 
Oh, of course it was. Uh, and there are a lot more uh, experts on Percy Bysshe Shelley in the SWP than there are writing for the Times. Others. But, uh, and I think, I think, if I could date it, because obviously I took a degree of interest in this, um, and of course the one we called the Welsh windbag before me was Lloyd George. Uh, so I, I didn't mind that comparison very much, even though I didn't want some of his other names, <laughs> like the old goat, the, the Welsh goat, because he, he was a famous chaser after the ladies. Anyway, that all, all that means is he wasn't married to Glenys. I, but but they, I think they came up with that term, and it might have been the late and greatly lamented Paul Foote was a wonderful book, uh, when I did a debate against him in, I think, Sussex University in the 70s. And after a tirade from him and his supporter, I had to get up and say, I know why it's called the SWP now. Having listened to our comrades for the last 25 minutes, it's definitely the social wankers party. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the audience, I, I'm sure, sure it was Sussex University, which is supposed to be one of their strongholds. The audience liked that, and they didn't. And I think that the product of that was Welsh Windbag. <laughs> Sodom. <laughs> Politicians talk about resilience a lot now. Keir Starmer talks about it. Um, you obviously led the Labour Party, as we've said, in ferocious times, internally, societally, economically, you know, an incredible period of turbulence in British it was. history. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, these, we're joking about them now, but these are insults that may well have cut deep. I mean, at the time, how did you deal with the abuse? Well, you're just going to live with them. I mean, it'd be stupid to pretend now, all these years later, that some of them didn't hurt. Uh, I mean... The, the bruising was on, on my ego there, really. You know, sticks and stones will break your bones. Names can barely hurt you. Let's change the saying a little bit with that. But the important thing is, uh, I had great people working with me. I had terrific support from my comrades and my family. Um, we never had an arrogance about what we were doing, but there was always a sense of determination and that we were doing it for the right reasons and in order to try and advance Labour towards democratic power. That, that was it. it uh, I don't want to sound like a fundamentalist, but that's basically <laughs> the kind of uh, inner and outer strength and resilience you've got to develop. If you can't develop that, go and do fly fishing or something because <laughs> you'll cause less harm. And, um, <laughs> Oh, except to the fish, I guess, <laughs> uh, if you're any good at it. But, but, the, but the important thing is um, not to be distracted by it. One of the, it's interesting, you reflected on the general economic and social turmoil, which, of course, was substantially engendered not by an instinctive anger in the British people. British people don't get very angry. Uh, I mean, it's simultaneously a strength and sometimes a source of frustration, <laughs> which I know you feel. But mainly it's a strength. The same as the fact that British people are not 
terribly interested in constitutions and box of rules and God knows what. At the moment, I wish to God they were, because our constitution is being bloody destroyed before our eyes, and with it a lot of freedoms. So I wish British people could periodically get roused by constitutional issues. But generally speaking, it's a strength not to be worried about bloody books of rules and all that <laughs> nonsense and points of order and any other business and, oh, God, Mr. Secretary, <laughs> Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ministers. Oh, Christ, you're driving you mad. <laughs> but, 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 but. All this was happening under Margaret Thatcher. And she was instinctively, and not just, and to that extent, deliberately provoking rage. I mean, that wasn't the product that she wanted, but she really did has, have as part of her agenda to secure such division as to leave her and people who felt like her permanently in the political majority. Now, I'm not saying she drew up any kind of strategy, how do I divide Britain? But when she bumped up against what could be tolerated and pursued policies that were destroying industries and communities and lives, she didn't relent, despite the counsel of several in her cabinet, people like Heseltine, for instance, and Baker and some others. Um, Carrington, until he, was, until he resigned over the Falklands, uh, Pym, Pryor, they, they were there. They were sufficiently sensible and sufficiently acquainted with the normality of people, partly because of their military service in several cases. Ted Heath was another one of those, that they tried to constrain and restrain, and she wouldn't have any of it. So that was occurring, and it was very difficult to say to people whose lives and existence and everything they were familiar with and everything they treasured, including self-respect and identity, being bloody destroyed around them to counsel patience and moderation in those sort of circumstances. There are times when it would be relatively easy. The 1980s wasn't one of them. And it wasn't because, as I say, there were great surges or waves of anger, but so much of the anger, so much of the terrible feeling of anxiety, the awful insecurity, was private and not communicated publicly. It was at the table, it was around the fireside, it was in front of the telly. And people got to be taught it was their fault. The poor are to blame for their poverty. The unemployed are in that condition because they couldn't find work. I mean, that was the ethos publicly in the press and in politics of the time. It's bloody difficult in those circumstances to get people to communicate their grief and concern and demands collectively and publicly when they are completely eaten by internalized grief. And that's what made it difficult, because at the same time, she was disabling people. She was fueling 
those who wanted excessive response and who were preaching, oh God, um, a denim jeans revolution of some kind uh, in little knots here and there and in little conspiracies here and there and calling each other comrade and all. Oh God, they drove me up the bloody wall. But, <laughs> but I understood why some people were attracted to them because they wanted dramatic answers. And by God, I did too. Just but he couldn't ones. say that. No, I mean, did you... I'm always fascinated when you see um, the state opening of Parliament, events at the Cenotaph, where you see the leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister together, former Prime Ministers. I mean, the last few years where Jeremy Corbyn's had to walk past Tony Blair has been... I was almost like John Terry and Wayne Bridge before that. <laughs> <laughs> he wonders if they're going to acknowledge each other before kick-off. <clears throat> Was there any relationship that the public didn't see between you and Thatcher, uh, whether at the Privy Council no. or official events? No, no we, we, we did. Funnily enough, last week, a very smart PhD student asked me about my relationship with Mrs Thatcher. And I had to say to him, in an uncharacteristically short answer, <laughs> there was none. And there wasn't. And in some respects, it's what I expected, really, of... Mrs. T, uh, but I only began to really recognize how big the gap was and how empty it was when John Major became Prime Minister. Uh, unavoidably, of course, as leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition, there are conditions, circumstances in which it is natural and necessary to be briefed by the Prime Minister on Privy Council terms. And, of course, you recall that the period that I led the Labour Party was one in which we were engaged in a dreadful, murderous emergency in Northern Ireland with many murderous effects on the mainland too. So, consequently, there was fairly frequent need for us to talk about the situation in Northern Ireland and the direction of policy. The exchanges with Thatcher in total privacy, with just a couple of civil servants, maybe a military person or two there, occasionally um, senior members of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, but most importantly of all, because they were generally silent, myself and her. And uh, it was an uninformative dialogue with the deaf, really, <laughs> because... To my astonishment, and this is the one thing that did surprise me, she either had no insight or would manifest no insight to the situation in Northern Ireland and the characters and characteristics of the different communities. And that was ABC. I mean, if you didn't understand that, you shouldn't have been in the 1980s in any leading position in British politics, in UK politics. Um, and so that baffled me, and I could only conclude she knew, but she didn't want to disclose it. When Major became Prime Minister, I realised she probably didn't bloody know. <laughs> and, and not because she wasn't told the quality of intelligence, some of it a bit bent, we discovered later, but the quality of the intelligence and the candor of the IUC leadership 
especially as the years went on and they got better and better and better. And the military leadership that was on the ground in Northern Ireland and the security forces trying to resist action in Northern Ireland and in the Republic indeed and on mainland Britain, all that information was quality. And for some reason or other that nobody will ever be able to explain, she disregarded it. Major didn't, and he was prepared to communicate it, manifesting understanding. And it was only then I realized that what Jim Callaghan had told me as a, a former prime minister about the nature of the relationship between the prime minister and the leader of the opposition, the normality was what Major was doing. The abnormality was what Thatcher didn't do. It was quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. How did you feel when she died? Um, well, I'll tell you what. It's an awful thing to say, but... Um, as it happened, on the day before she died, a beloved woman councillor in my constituency that had supported me staunchly, and even more important, was an absolute legend in her community in Newbridge, in my constituency, died. Uh, she was a year younger than Thatcher, and she did a hell of a life. Um, she had five kids. Her husband, just after the fifth child was born, had had his back broken underground, and he was in bed for the rest of their married life together. And that was probably 40, year, 40 odd years. You never heard her complain. She helped everybody. She was a stalwart in the chapel. She was a giant in the community and a great socialist. So I had to go to her funeral, which, as it happened, was on the same day as Margaret Thatcher's. So I was in Newbridge in my, well, it had been my constituency, uh, and not at Thatcher's funeral. And everybody understood why I had to give priority to this noble woman who in so many ways, in, certainly in terms of personal character, sheer applied warmth and effective practical intelligence was everything that Margaret Thatcher wasn't. So um, I avoided having to offer what would have been at best quite insincere eulogies. I, I was glad to avoid that, um, for the sake of my own conscience, really. It was, a, it was interesting watching sort of different people react to it, but it, just fl flashing forward again now, then, to Keir Starmer and how he's doing, what's your assessment of his first couple of years as leader of the Labour Party? Well, he's had a hell of a tough couple of years. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't compare with the minor strike or anything like that, uh, but to be prevented, for good reason, from communicating with the general public, which is your only real means of communication. There's so few of the newspapers that you can rely on. You simply take your turn with television and radio interviews and all the rest of it. So you're denied the best means of communicating with and inviting the views of the people that you most need to impress in order to build the Labour vote. 
So the frustration, uh, again, is demonstrated great maturity and patience in dealing with that. I mean, I think I probably would have burst. <laughs> but, but, but fortunately, uh, he's made a very stern, stern stuff and he's weathered it so that now that he's got a chance to communicate and now that because of uh, wider political circumstances he's got a chance to be heard, you can see how his stature is more appreciated amongst the public at the same time, of course, that people are rumbling Bodger Johnson. And um, that's the first thing. And secondly, in conditions of the gravest seriousness, including this appalling criminal war in Ukraine, he is showing that he's worthy of the title national leader. And uh, all he can do is try and show that in truth, in objective circumstances. And I think he's doing that damn well. And what would your advice to him be about how to campaign against Boris Johnson? Um, well, I, I wouldn't offer it to him, really. I will offer it to you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, George Orwell said, every joke is a small revolution. So I think that, to an extent, we ought to just take... Johnson and his word and make a joke of him because he is a bloody walking joke. The problem <laughs> is this. There's a, a term from James Connolly, the socialist who was executed after the Easter uprising in, uh, in Dublin. And Connolly talked about the system in which there was ruling by fooling. And that is epitomized by Johnson, ruling by fooling. Uh, and I'm not accusing the people generally of being stupid or uh, inadequate or unintelligent or anything like that. The fact of the matter is he is an accomplished fooler, which is different from being a fool. And by that means he is a ruler and a very inadequate one. Now, I actually believe that if Kia can continue to employ what comes naturally to him, cold anger and acerbic comment, then people will say, uh, this guy has got the measure of Johnson, who is the Conservative Party at the moment. Uh, in my lifetime, Macmillan was the Conservative Party, Thatcher was the Conservative Party, Johnson is the Conservative Party. The other people in between have been leaders of that party. They haven't epitomized the party or had control of it to the extent that Johnson has had control. There are a few bits breaking away now uh, to their eternal credit but not enough of them. And so he's got to be attacked where he believes he's strongest. And of course, that is in the immeasurable monstrosity of his ego. <laughs> and he's got to be beaten. The narcissist's 
mirror has got to be smashed. <laughs> and that's the way to do it. Um, when he... He's like most people who consider themselves to be great wits and irrepressible sores and terrific lads <laughs> and good chaps. <laughs> they hate being laughed at. They bloody despise it. And that will produce weakness. That's what they need to do. So I would like to employ you. <laughs> Uh, here's the contract. <laughs> Sign you up as joke meister <laughs> to Keir Starmer. Because I think you'll produce the right level of barbed wit, stripped of crudities, which I know uh, you are past master at uh, the clean gag you can tell your grandmother. Depends on your grandmother. But that's what you... You should spend the rest of your... The rest of... Your 20s do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was very nice of you to say. I mean, I'm not sure if you saw the first half. I'm not, I'm not, sure, uh, I'm not sure I'm on form at the moment. Oh, um, it's lovely. I thought you, Richard Bergen, was brilliant. <laughs> it was... Have you met him? No, I've encountered him across a room. <laughs> um, I, funny thing is... Uh, uh, I think the last time I spoke in the Parliamentary Labour Party, um, and I, I, I haven't done frequently since I uh, retired, I, I don't think that they ought to get the ghosts turning up and shouting too often. Um, this isn't Hamlet after all. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I was first stimulated into thinking uh, I might speak here in a packed committee room, committee room 10, and Bergen got up, I didn't know who he was, he, he, was, he, was, he was brand new then, uh, and made a speech saying why we should unite uh, and support Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and I thought that was a bit excessive. <laughs> and he, he, might, uh, he might need some Correction. <laughs> uh, then my mind was made up for me when Dennis Skinner got up and spoke and completely falsified history. I mean, uh, I, I think he knew I was there and Prescott was there and both Jeff Rooker, who was also there, and John Prescott and my knew that uh, Dennis was manufacturing the past in almost a newspeak way. Mm. So I thought, oh, bloody hell, he can't get away with this. So I, I got up and uh, offered a few words. And um, somebody, I don't know who, I don't know who was in the meeting or outside, because you can hear things through the door, whether it was one of the journalists, I don't know who did it. Somebody recorded the meeting and um, I was fairly direct in my comments, and it sort of did the rounds on social media. Thank God we didn't have that when I was leaving. <laughs> oh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> oh, I'm all, all in favour of technological advance, but I don't know if social media is an advance of any description. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, it did the rounds. And that was stimulated in part 
by young comrade Bergen. <laughs> and uh, he's gone from strength to strength. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great... The audio of you in that meeting, if you haven't heard it, you, I will post it on my social media. Um, <laughs> tomorrow. It is absolutely exceptional. It is... You don't miss a beat. You don't repeat a word. There's no deviation or repetition. It is just... <laughs> total political sense in this impassioned Kinnock way. And just to hear you saying this in the modern Labour Party was really fascinating. Was Corbyn in the room? Yeah, he was sitting at the front bench. Um, but the point is, Jeremy, in the parliamentary Labour Party meetings that I went to when he was leader, uh, he didn't often speak anyway. Um, even on occasions when he really was required in the normal course of things, not because of tradition, but because of reality, uh, to respond. And, and he didn't. He just sat there behind the desk, sagely looking on. And uh, I, I really thought that was a bit strange. And the point is, to his credit, Jeremy didn't want to do the job. Uh, <laughs> but he did. And he was given plenty of opportunities to retire gracefully, which he didn't take. And the circumstances of 2017 gave some of his supporters um, an entirely distorted uh, perspective of what was happening in UK politics, which I don't think, again to Corbyn's credit, I don't think he shared that analysis. And I'm pretty certain that John MacDonald didn't. McDonald's too close to the ground to have accepted those delusions. But of course, you take advances where you can get them, and you're bound to represent them as great triumphs, even when they're defeats, as 2017 was. But 2019 was then waiting to happen. And tragically, it happened. And we got Boris Johnson, again, a product of First Past the Post, with a very substantial majority of votes against him, as they were against Margaret Thatcher, so divided as to provide him with a substantial majority. The sooner we get the chance to change that system to one that rationally reflects the distribution of votes in the United Kingdom, in our representation in Parliament, on the basis of constituencies, the better. We will be plagued with conservative governments because of divided anti-conservative majorities until we do. How did you feel in the 2017 and 2019 elections as someone who'd had such, you know, almost def totally defining moments of the hard left and trying to rid uh, the Labour Party of them, to see them then control the party and lead it in a way really... And, and totally out of the traditions of the Labour Party, Corbyn is not a footite in any sort of way, really. Did you still want Labour to win in 2017 and 2019? Oh, of course, I always want Labour to win. Even under I, Corbyn? Listen, if we were playing bloody tiddlywinks, I'd want Labour to win. <laughs> so it just... I'm not sure he could win at tiddlywinks. <laughs> I, well, maybe, maybe he could. <laughs> and then discovered talent. Um, yeah, of course I did. Uh, on the first day of canvassing, and I canvassed in Port Talbot in Steve's constituency, naturally. I did a few other places as well, but I obviously wanted to get down there to get a smell um, <laughs> uh, as soon as I could. 
So this is the first day of canvassing. I was with, out with about four other people, uh, one of the boys from the steelworks, a couple of other people. And I think it must have been the third or fourth door I knocked uh, in part of the Abravan constituency. And an, an elegant elderly lady uh, came to the door. My guess is she was a retired teacher, retired nurse, you know, a very, very well put together 76, 77 year old. And, uh, oh, Mr. Kinnock, how are you? And I thought, I hope she's not going to invite me in for tea now because <laughs> like, I, I haven't got time. And she said, um, uh, You will be canvassing on behalf of your son. I said, Yes. Um, and of course, the Labour Party. Yes, she said. Well, on this occasion, she was very precise, on this occasion, I'm going to distinguish between the two. <laughs> and I said, um, sorry, I'm not quite following you. And she said, I'm going to vote for your Stephen. I didn't tell him that he was called my Stephen. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to vote for your Stephen. But of course, Mr. Corbyn can't win, can he? And I said, well, if you vote for Stephen Kinnock, you certainly won't be voting for Jeremy Corbyn. Although I hope we win the election, I'd be less than honest if I said otherwise. She said, in a strange way, so do I. But you can put me down as voting for Stephen Kinnock, not Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> and it went on and on and on like that. And then when I was away from Aberavon and I went to four other constituencies altogether, one of them in London, I was getting the same thing. Not so much in London, it has to be said, but uh, elsewhere, I was getting the same thing. In the Forest of Dean, uh, which is a marginal, uh, and in uh, Reading, which of course, if we win, we have a Labour government, if we don't, we don't, uh, and in London, and I got the same thing, not so much in London, as I said. But uh, that was a minuscule sample. It's not in any way scientific, but I knew exactly what was going on. That was 2017. In 2019, unfortunately, I was preoccupied, as you know, Glenys is ill, and so I couldn't describe myself as active in any way, really. Uh, I did a bit of fundraising, and that was it. But when you saw the exit poll in 2017, I mean, I remember where I was. It was just like, oh, my God. This, it, 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 to be fair to Corbyn, it was an earthquake, right? Even though they still lost and all the rest of it, no one expected it to be that close. I know how I felt when I saw it that close, and I'd worked for the Labour Party. Did you, even though you wanted Labour to win, was there a part of you that thought, shit? No, I was, I was, I, I was surprised, but I was focusing so hard on calculating what uh, Theresa May could do mm. that I wasn't thinking. However, however, uh, Steve had uh, done a fly-on-the-wall series of documentaries with three or four other Labour candidates in the weeks of the election. And uh, we were together for the count with Glenys and Hella, Steve's wife, and his eldest daughter, Johanna. And we were in the Aberavon Wizards Rugby Football Club. And we, we were 
astounded, yes. As I said, my main focus was on trying to calculate to what degree she would depend on the Ulster Unionists. Um, and Steve manifested his astonishment. And because he was known to be uh, an articulate critic of, uh, of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, this subsequently has been represented as uh, the, the shock that took the night. It was bloody nonsense. It was totally irrelevant to the stream of history. But uh, he got a lot of the usual kind of stick on social media afterwards. Didn't bother him. His skin is thicker than mine even. So, and which make, makes him really... I've got skin, he's got a carapace. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, had, he's, he's... I mean, he was brought up with Glenys and myself, bloody hell, from the age of 13, uh, I was leader of the late party. Then he married the bloody Danish prime minister. Uh, well, she was leader of the opposition first, then she was prime minister, which had a happier ending than uh, other bits of his life. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's had to grow one, and he has. <laughs> I, I shall, I mean, he's perfectly equipped otherwise. <laughs> Great. I'll never leave that down. <laughs> oh, man. So, as a former leader of the Labour Party, and I know that maybe Corbyn would sit out of this group or whatever it is, are there WhatsApp groups? Email chains where you, Tony, Gordon, Kia, are there forums? No. Like an alumni thing? No, no, bloody hell no. And which is just as well. It would be so fantastically self indulgent and self opinionated if people went round doing that. And, and I mean, I know it doesn't happen in the Tory party because they're not talking to each other. But, <laughs> but it doesn't, I mean, I, I mean, Fairly regular contact with Gordon, uh, less frequent with Tony, though I get a lot of information and so on, and that's very good. Alistair, who stepped in for me, God bless him, uh, when I had coronavirus in, back in January, I see him a lot, and he's uh, Tony's vicar on earth, or he used to be. <laughs> I used to be. He's, a, he's, he's in retirement now, he's in retirement now. But, um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, the contacts are easy, and with Gordon and myself, uh, the last uh, intense exchange we had was about the Scotland-Wales match a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I tell you what, he reminded me, I'll tell you this story, bloody marvellous. Um, I wanted to go, this would have been about uh, 2002, I guess. Do you need more whiskey, by the way? Oh, that's a good idea, thanks. Um, <laughs> since I'm talking about Scotland. <laughs> only because of that, of course. Um, you let me know when. It would have been... That's lovely, Tal. Yeah, two, 2002, I think it was. Anyway, um, I was having difficulty getting tickets in Murrayfield for the Scotland Wales match. So I got in, in touch with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who I do, I do like saying things like that. And, and uh, yeah, I fixed you up. Wonderful. Anyway, he did it through the Scottish Rugby Football Union. So instead of going in with the boys, I got the full treatment. The lunch beforehand, 
and the seat in the special box. And it was all great, lovely. And it, there was the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, who is, of course, the president of the Scottish Rugby Football Union, and she doesn't pull any punches about it. But, but, she was very regal and reserved in the first half, because by halftime, we were leading 19-0. So I, you know, I was my usual modest self, <laughs> scarcely raising a chair. Anyway, halftime, into uh, for drinky poos, drinky poos were had, back out, and I was looking forward to a tumultuous victory, and that uh, I was going to commiserate with the Princess Royal in the wake of it, in my usual uh, <clears throat> condescending fashion. <laughs> and um, it didn't happen like that. They scored 19 points, and it was a bloody tie. 19 all. In the second half, she was uncontained. She was, oh, God, if she'd been from Merseyside. She, oh, my God, she really... Ripped into it, and uh, to full, to full credit to her, she's a genuine enthusiast, and she knows about the game, and she was giving it bell tinker, and we could not bloody score. So at the end of it, I had to pretend that I enjoyed the match when we tied after being 19 nil up at half time. It was bloody terrible. And I'm certain, with her experience of public life, she saw through me and understood that I was a total 22-carat bloody hypocrite. But nevertheless, that was memorable. And I, I went, we went for a great dinner that night with Gordon and his mates in Leith. It was absolutely terrific. But we were reminding ourselves of that occasion and how sober it was, how very, very sober it was. <laughs> yeah. But that was... Uh, we, I'm, I mean, I'm fascinated, particularly by Gordon, it has to be said, because he is still such a crusader for justice and advance and peace and humanity, the stuff that he pours out. And, of course... Um, he, he works for the UN. He doesn't get paid. He gets spare expenses, uh, travel and all the rest of it. But he, he doesn't get fat salaries or anything like that. And he really slogs at it. And he, uh, oh, he really writes really masterful, thought-provoking, effective lobbying articles. So he's, I think he's a terrific guy. And he's regained his strength totally. And... What, what form does your communication take? Do you email each other? Does he pick up the phone and call out the blues? Is it text? Um, a, a, bit of, a bit of everything. Uh, mainly texts, because I do that much more easily than I do most other things. Uh, <laughs> occasionally phone calls, mainly texts. Sometimes, if there's a big screed, emails. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and continual suggestions. We must get together. Uh, and it might not happen before I die, but I, <laughs> I, I know he'd like to, and I would like to, and one day it'll happen, I suppose, yeah. Well, we could do a special reunion show. Oh, absolutely. Theatre. Absolutely. I, and, of course, the point is, what everybody forgets, everybody forgets now, possibly except me, but um, 
but I'm the elephant in the room anyway, so I, the, is Gordon's reputation, the reason that he got to stardom when I put him on the front bench and all the rest of it, was he was absolutely dazzlingly brilliant in the House of Commons. Yes. In a time when the Commons was looking for that, but didn't have many who could do it. And Gordon was unsurpassed. He was bloody brilliant. And of course, uh, they, that got knocked out of him in all those years in government, for reasons you could understand. But uh, I spoke with him, for instance, uh, in the referendum campaign, the Brexit referendum, and a fat lot of bloody good we did. Although, <laughs> I spoke with him in Scotland, and of course we won in Scotland, but, uh, and he was really back to form, wisecracking and telling jokes that everybody had heard five times before, <laughs> but still thought they were uproariously funny. He was terrific, he was bloody great, yeah. So what, he hasn't lost it. And what about Keir? Does he, do you guys talk? Uh, yeah, we... we um, Mainly again, text. This is probably because of me, uh, and um, happily, thank God, uh, I'm not formally consulted. Thank God, because poor old Ed Miliband had to put up with me. Uh, not because I particularly wanted, but he thought it was a good idea, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I had mixed, mixed views about that. Uh, Jeremy, although Jeremy's my MP and a, a, you know, a decent bloke, um, we obviously didn't have much in the way of communication. <laughs> um, but would he ever, but not much, but would, did he ever reach out and say, you know, any time you want to give me advice, no, Neil, or what would you uh, do? No, to be fair, John McDonald did. Um, really? But for a mixture of circumstances, not his fault, and not my fault, really. Um, <laughs> it didn't actually come to pass. But uh, McDonald, um, the unfortunate thing about John is uh, he, he was such a bloody affected dafty in the Livingstone years and so on that it, he ruined reputation for seriousness. And not only is John McDonald serious, he's earnest as well. And he's, uh, he's genuine labor. He, he wants us to win. Um, but the people that he's, and it's a bit like religion, when you become associated with a particular grouping in politics, really it doesn't matter whether you want to leave that church and join another church or no church at all, you're stuck with it. Uh, even if they don't accept you, uh, the others reject you. So, and I, I can't speak for John McDonnell, obviously, but I, I've always thought he was a bloody sight more serious than most of them with quite a lot of the right instincts. And uh, unfortunately, he was a good man falling among trots. But there you are. It happens. You know. <laughs> but you went on a journey, obviously, from 83 to 92. Incrementally, you, you do move from the, from the left to the centre and obviously you, you force the parties to go with it. Do Not you know really. I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm as... I'm as much on the left as I've ever been. I know old people always say that. But, um, well, people are meant to drift right as they get older, aren't they? Yeah, but, well, yeah, but, uh, I'm, you know, amongst my comrades, I haven't seen any of that. Um, Have you become more right-wing on anything? No. Um, <laughs> you not started reading no. the Daily Mail? Oh, Christ. 
voting UK. Well, only when I've got no other form of fiction. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, the, the point is, I, you know, when you see it on the newsstand, and I've, I've got a smashing news agent, lovely bloke, and, and his brother, they're great. And, um, and I, Talk I about him like it's an actual agent. And I, and I, yeah. <laughs> Does me a great deal. <laughs> and I, uh, I have a look on, the, on the, uh, the papers lying there, and just the front page, and they're bloody insulting you. Because they, they're telling you things that you know are absolutely provable bloody nonsense. And anyway, so I don't. Uh, that's, that's, that's my short answer. I, um, no, I, 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 one thing that I've moderated on, I suppose, is republicanism. Because it's a bloody waste of time. I, I, <laughs> I, I came to that conclusion uh, in about the mid-late 70s. I spoke in a debate. Uh, at that time, there used to be a, a debate on an order relating to the, uh, the list. Uh, and the, the civil list. The civil list. Uh, that was the pay for the royal family. Yeah. And I spoke with one or two others, Jimmy Wellbeloved, who was a right-wing member of the Labour Party, and one or two others, um, to try and stop the increase. And, uh, I, you know, you only got a few green ink things in those days. There were no social media. Um, and that didn't change my mind except to harden my opinions. But I thought, nobody bloody cares about this. <laughs> and uh, I could usually count, if I'd spoken in the House of Commons or appeared on the telly, I walked down the high street in Blackwood or go to our house in Pondham Frith or go down the pub or whatever, and somebody would say, hey, saw you or heard about you, and offer me a comment. And it was, uh, I don't think I was special of me, but it used to happen to me frequently in my constituency. And nobody said a bloody word about it. And I thought, now is this that they're against or they don't care? And after what cannot be described as scientific examination, I discovered they didn't bloody care. <laughs> and I thought, why? But I can retain my republicanism and do bugger all about it because nobody gives a damn. And that's the view that I took. And I had an interesting exchange with uh, Duke of Edinburgh once because back in the 70s, he'd made a speech about unemployment. And uh, in, in Glasgow, I remember, and it was reported it might have been a, a lecture for Radio Clyde. And I remember that distinctly. And uh, a guy from the PA rang me up and said, uh, Duke of Edinburgh said this, that, and the other thing about unemployment and the use of leisure. And what do, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm prepared to take advice on leisure from the Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> He's been practicing it for most of his adult life. <laughs> Which made the front page, actually. And uh, it also got me the only time I've ever been challenged to a duel. Yeah, I... Like Castle Rain Canning. Oh, bloody hell, yeah. Well, it wasn't, 
it wasn't from Keith Joseph, but it was, <laughs> it was I, I had a letter uh, on nice paper and typed and signed with an address and everything, and uh, a guy challenging me for the duel. Hang on, my, not the Duke of Edinburgh? No, it wasn't the Duke, right. no, no. It, he wasn't even related to the Duke, as far as I can make out, though he might have thought he was. <laughs> Prince anyway, Harry. this raving bloody lunatic <laughs> invited me. <laughs> quite, quite. Uh, that's, that, that's the difference between a politician and a comedian. <laughs> he can say what you were thinking. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> um, I, I, I didn't respond, actually. Although, usually when I had threats of violence, I used to write a note if the silly buggers left an address, which occasionally they did, saying that I was fascinated by what they had to say, and I would like to call on them for a further discussion, together with interested members of Treville Rugby Football Club. <laughs> and I never got any further letters from those addresses. <laughs> anyway... Uh, you got to take the rough with the rough, haven't you? And um, I, uh, anyway, I then encountered the Duke, of course, when I had to dress up and go to Buckingham Palace for state dinners, together with my charming wife, who used to have the most magnificent bloody dresses. It was great. It was. It justified the banquets, even with, you know, desert bandits of some kind, uh, king of Saudi Arabia or whatever. And, and uh, we turn up and go through the formalities. And the best formality about those dinners, and you might have seen it on the crown or something like that, is when you're all sitting there, three, four hundred people, around these bloody great long tables you could land an aeroplane on, and... We're in a strict sense of order, I kept on moving up the table uh, in the Privy Council, um, and Glenys kept on getting stuck with the forefront of secretary from the embassy. <laughs> anyway, uh, poor son. Anyway, no, I... I mean her, not him. Anyway, um, though, though on second thoughts, yes, yes, with some of them, we, the King of Morocco turned up. And um, uh, one of the, one of the uh, ushers came around, and they, hold, they have these long billiard cue things, white sticks, and they just show that they're there on business, and came up and said, uh, Mr. Kunak, the, uh, uh, His Royal Highness, the, the King, would like to have a chat with you quietly. I, by all means. So I, I go, in, and there's this kind of alcove, and there's the King with people with lots of medals that they'd won killing their own people, all standing around <laughs> there. And, and, uh, and well, it was, they hadn't been at war with anybody else. But, so, so there's the king. I, I'm not sure it is Hassan or Idris. Anyway, sitting there, perfectly nice fella in his, I know, late 60s, early 70s. And we had a chat about uh, Moroccan and British relations, and he was interested in the concept of the loyal opposition. So could, could you explain to me, in very good English, um, you know, much better than my Arabic, and uh, uh, what that involves. So I 
as quickly as I could, explain to him about the nature of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And there was a long pause, and he said, hmm, I think it will be some time before this develops in Morocco. <laughs> whereupon, whereupon, Mrs. Kinnock, elegantly dressed, looking very beautiful, standing just behind my left shoulder. So she was on the right side, but not in a proper position. Anyway, she chips in by saying, uh, Your Royal Highness, could I, could I raise some questions about the Sahawi people in the, Sah in, the, in, in the desert? And of course, they'd been at war viciously against these people for 20 years. And they'd been slaughtered. Um, a well-stocked, well-armed, well-supplied Moroccan army against ragged-assed, very courageous people fighting for their independence. And, of course, Glenys was well-briefed on the Sahawi and raised four or five questions, uh, like machine gun fire, uh, with the King of Morocco, whereupon the guys with the medals closed around him and we had to leave. It was, it was a fascinating experience. But um, anyway, we turned up at Buckingham uh, Palace and Digger Edinburgh um, said, quick word, a word. And I, I mean, these people, some of them are really nice and genuine gents and ladies, no question at all about that. But sometimes you encounter one that is so posh they can barely speak, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, Philip, however, to his credit, was crystal clear, okay. and, um, and uh, he, uh, he said, um, uh, I see you're taking your leisure this evening. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, touche, mate. And I said, uh, yes, and, and you're working. <laughs> I, that's the difference between us. And, and he said, touche. <laughs> and, and that was okay. Um, we always got on okay in that respect. It was, uh, and I, I reflected then, I, what a bloody waste of time—the twenty minutes I'd spent on put writing a speech, saying how oh, the civil list ought to be destroyed, when nobody gives a damn. Frankly, nobody gives a damn. I think more people might give a damn now, in view of more recent developments. Yes, uh, but. Then, we're talking about the mid-1980s. Well, we're talking originally about the late 1970s, and they really didn't give a damn then. It's just not worth using up time and energy on it. Well, there's one more thing I do definitely want to ask you about, but I want to take a couple of audience questions. So if you could indicate clearly, and if I could ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You bastard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, there's someone waving just there. Me? Yes, you. Uh, it, it, it's, it's not a question, it, it's just, a, just something I desperately want to say to Neil Kelly. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> no, no, yeah. it's just that I just want to thank him from the bottom of my soul because under your um, teaching, if you like, you took a hard line 
socialist who didn't care about being in power but controlling the Labour Party and showed me how important it was for the Labour Party to be in power in the country. And you also taught me the importance of being in the EU. And I want to thank you very much for that. Oh, very man. Good. Thank you. Oh, mate. Oh, God. <laughs> What's you. your name? Quentin Sadler. We, we've had some email discussions. Quentin, you've had email discussions. <laughs> Sounds like there's more to this than... <laughs> Oh, man, how does that feel, Neil? I, uh, <clears throat> it's very nice. Fabian, that's a good start. That's a bloody good start. Oh, right. Oh, God. It wasn't a good start. <laughs> Something good came out of that day. Yeah, that's great. That's terrific. Well, I tell you what about inopportune birth. Uh, <laughs> I, no, <laughs> inopportune times of birth. Uh, I was born in March 1942. And when I was in my teens, I said to my father, uh, Dad, wasn't it a bit irresponsible for you and Mum to get pregnant in June 1941? <laughs> and he said, he said, well, we never doubted we were going to win the war. <laughs> but he said, after Hitler invaded Russia, I bloody knew it was certain. So it was okay. <laughs> and I tell you what, I'm bloody certain that my mother got pregnant with me the day after Barbarossa. I'm not, I'm, I, 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 wish, I wish my old man was around, or I wish I'd thought of asking him, could he locate the date more precisely? Oh I mean, if you think of it, 1941 was a bloody disaster for the United Kingdom and our Allied forces until Hitler invaded Russia and the Japs bombed, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Until then, it was unending bloody disaster. I, El Alamein and everything else that went with it. And there was my old man and my old woman. I, I rolling round in the hay in the middle of it all. <laughs> Bloody hell! <laughs> We're going to win the war. It's okay. <laughs> Let's have a baby to celebrate. Bloody hell! Well, and here we are, all those years later, with that baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they did. Um, right. Let's try. I'm trying to get a sort of. Uh, it's all men and Edwina Curry. If there is a. Yes, there's a woman over there. A woman. Yes. She's still great, yeah. And yeah. still is campaigner. And what I would just like to ask, bearing in mind the war in Ukraine at the moment, and the absolutely disgusting um, um, news from the Tory party about how many refugees we're welcoming into the country, would you not say, on behalf of the Labour Party, that we should welcome refugees into this country? Sure. Should we welcome refugees into the country? Yeah, and, this time? and the party has made that very, very clear. Uh, by gigantic coincidence, but to my great satisfaction, uh, Steve is now the Shadow Immigration Minister following the 
awful death of Jack Toomey, who was a dear comrade of mine for decades. Um, and the party, the leadership, the spokespeople have made clear this has got to be a place of sanctuary. And that the idiotic and cruel bureaucracy that is impeding even the most natural reunions with the most proven sets of circumstances is uh, appalling. Um, but of course, our activities shouldn't be confined simply to trying to give succor to the earliest first victims of Putin's fascism. Uh, it's got to go, as I'm sure you'd agree, much, much further than that, with sanctions that devastate Putin's standing domestically and uphold uh, the values that have been obscured by convenience and complacency too much in the last 20 years or so. I mean, the reality is, uh, certainly in the last 12 years, the reality is that the connections between dependence on Russian oligarchs' money and property and influence in the UK and toleration of Putin's manifest murderous successes, excesses, not just uh, in Georgia, not just in Ukraine, uh, not just in the Crimea, uh, but here on our streets killing people uh, and trying to kill Russians. All of that has been evident and almost ignored. And that has got to be compensated for now. We've got to catch up fast from what started out as complacency and slipped into apathy and then slipped in so far as some in the Tory party and the establishment are concerned, not all, not all, but certainly slipped from apathy into enabling their excesses and their exercise of power and their arrogance and the way in which they thought they could pillage a whole country and its people and keep on earning gigantic significance and income from it. And we've got to compensate from that by ruining that budget. And that's not in any sense excessive. That is natural justice. And we've also got to see that we equip the extraordinary people of Ukraine in their armed forces and in their civilian resistance with the materiel and the arms, yes, that will enable them to sustain the struggle. The thing is, this war is unwinnable. It's not winnable for Ukraine, which is a minuscule military power by comparison, obviously, with Russia. But it's not winnable for Putin either. It mustn't be win winnable, and it won't be. He has made a gigantic strategic error. But it's the error that dictators make when they inhale their own deluded propaganda. They do it. They've done it throughout history. And 
It means that they go to excess. They make the false move. And it eventually brings their ruin. Now, eventually can be a hell of a long time. Years and years and years. And I think that's probably the case in this case. But Putin will be shredded as a consequence of what's happening now. He is miscalculated on every level. He has miscalculated the strength of resistance and the commitment of his armed forces. Certainly in terms of what they committed and budgeted in support terms. He thought he was going to undertake a blitzkrieg and it's turned into something a great deal more prolonged and demanding, even against the relative puniness of Ukraine. Secondly, he didn't understand, because he was inhaling his own delusions, the nature and resolve of the Ukrainian people. It didn't matter who they voted for in the presidential election. They're on the same side now. And we can overstate, exaggerate, romanticize about the will of national identity. And we can get it wrong so many times. But in this case, with the promise of oppression inflicted on them, the certainty, and with invasion of their soil, you are seeing manifested what we haven't seen in modern times outside religious zealotry of people so determined to hold their ground that they're making superhuman sacrifice. It's quite extraordinary. And neither Putin nor we, nor maybe the Ukrainians, understood that a fortnight ago, but they understand it now. I'm not sure what Putin does, but the Ukrainians do and we do. And then thirdly, the third massive, massive... This is still massive. one sentence, Neil. <laughs> My life is one long sentence. <laughs> OK, I'll, I'll finish. But the, the third bloody gigantic error that he has made is to mistake the complacency, the apathy, yes, the complicity of the West for amnesia about what we really stand for. But when we see the reprise of Nazism so manifested, then people of all politics and of every hue across the West, very broadly defined, because I think it includes a hell of a lot of people who are certainly not geographically of the West or maybe temperamentally of the West. But nevertheless, the reaction against the invasion of Ukraine has been unified, substantial. And here's the crucial thing. It has to be sustained. It must be prolonged. This is going to be a hell of a long slog and there are going to be sacrifices inflicted on our people, economically, certainly, and to some degree, politically. 
but certainly economically. There's a bloody big bill for what Putin has done and a big bill for resisting what Putin has done. It's a bill we've got to pay as our, in my case, parents, in many cases, grandparents' generation had to pay it between 1939 and 1945. It is a struggle on that scale. And I don't dra dra dramatize it by one iota. That's where we're at. And the massive good fortune is that I won't have to see my grandson picking up an AK-47 and fighting for his life and his home and his street. But the Ukrainians are. And they will die. But Ukraine will live. Neil, um, every guest we have here is different, and there's always a, a different atmosphere. And, and you know, Angela Rayner was different to Michael Hazeltine, was different to Edwina Carew, was different to you. I know just how heartfelt you are, and how obviously emotional you got there about Ukraine, but how emotional you got the compliment. I never would usually presume to speak for an auditorium full of people, but I just I hope you know how how much respect there is for you in the world, not, not just here tonight, but just your heartfelt nature and your amazing soul are something that still give great strength to people, not just here, but out there. And, you, you know, it is insane for me to be... Not that I think you need to hear this. You know, I grew up as a kid in Nottingham at the time you were leading the Labour Party. You were the first person that got me into politics. You've been a huge influence on me. Oh, and it, <laughs> Well, if, if, they, if, if they're claiming... Well, if they, people are claiming here to have read it. They, they can't have all bought it, because I saw the sales <laughs> <thing. laughs> There's one copy got shared around this auditorium, according to the publishers. Um, but, Neil, in all seriousness, there is something very special about you that very few people have, not just in politics, but in life. And you've given us all a very special evening here tonight. And I just hope you know that we feel about you, the way you feel about people and, and, and the people that you've always tried to help in politics. There is a lot of love for you there, and it's real. And um, I just hope you know it. Thank I hope you. you feel it. <laughs> You're a hero. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I hope we get to do this again. <laughs> Thank you all for being such a wonderful audience tonight. This has been a very, very special atmosphere. But Neil, on behalf of everyone here, on behalf of everyone that's going to listen to this, either this week or at some point in the future, not just thank you for tonight. Thank you for being one of the greatest politicians any of us will ever encounter. Thank you for being such an incredible person. Ladies and gentlemen, Neil Kinnock. Well, I defy you not to be moved by that. If you're not...
currently dabbing your eyes with a tissue or a hanky. I, I don't believe it. What a man. Um, and what a phenomenal guest. And what an icon. And again, it's the similar thing to having Michael Heseltine on. Towering figures like Neil Kinnock and Michael Heseltine, who dominated their parties for so long, dominated our news as a country, shaped the country we're in, shaped the political parties that some of us joined and, and had such an impact just beyond the speeches that they made and the things they either did or tried to do. Neil Kinnock, especially now, is so relevant and the things he did are more relevant than they've ever been since he led the Labour Party. And of course, the leaders that followed could not have won elections without the huge work the brave work, the exhausting work that he did. Uh, and he really is a national treasure. And it's I, what really strikes me about so many people in politics, but particularly about Neil Kinnock is he achieved so much. He did so much for the party and therefore for the country. Um, but he's so humble about it. And, you know, all these years later for genuine heartfelt compliments to move him so much is a real measure of the man because he is so heartfelt and he is first and foremost about improving people's lives. And his career was purely a vehicle to do that. Um, and when someone like him is so gifted and yet so lacking in ego, um, it is quite strange. You know, he doesn't swagger around the place. He has great presence, of course he's charismatic, but he has a phenomenal generosity in, in conversation that is very, very rare. He is a very special person. And I've had so many messages already. I think everyone who was there, on the, I have hundreds of messages. I think it was everyone who was there on the night messaged me, just saying that they'd witnessed something incredible. People who'd been there with their parents uh, or, or friends just left that theatre, as I'm sure you're now leaving this podcast, profoundly affected by what you've just heard. And what a phenomenal gift that is, that some people possess. And I think Tessa Jowell possessed it. I think a number very small number of politicians possess it. Neil Kinnock possesses it in quantities and in depths that very few people will ever, ever possess it. So, God, I'm so grateful he came back on. Um, and obviously, you know, with so many of my guests, they are icons and they're people that I've looked up to at some point. And I really looked up to Neil Kinnock as a kid. And he, uh, it really is quite surreal at times. And I'm sure I've said this before. You do catch a moment or I catch a moment where I always think I've got the best seat in the house. And I'm just, I just want to listen to the guest. But I also think, oh my God, you know, when I was growing up, if you'd have said to me, one day you'll be sat opposite Neil Kinnock, interviewing him in a theatre in the West End of London. I obviously just wouldn't have believed you. Um, so it's just such a treat. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, thank you to Neil Kinnock. Thank you to everyone who came and continues to come and support the show live. You can get tickets for the future shows on the link or you can go to mattford.com, uh, just mattford.com and you'll find the link there. Um, but my word, I shall leave it there because I really can't improve upon. Oh, the only thing I would say is I obviously said at the end, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about. And then I completely forgot. And I wanted to ask him about Joe Biden um, because he told me something backstage <laughs> that I thought, oh, I must ask him about that. And I didn't. So, I realise this is terribly rude of me, but I, I, I feel like I'm going to try and get him back on at some point and then I'll let him tell that story because if I just dribble it out now, it, it, I don't think it does it justice. So I know I then leave you. I was leaving you, I'm not leaving you with a cliffhanger that, that you're feeling, um, that I imagine, tantalised by in a very frustrating way. But there we go. Thank you for downloading. Please do leave a review. 
It really helps the podcast. It genuinely does. Getting it up the charts means that other people get to listen to amazing people like Neil Kinnock. So please leave a review. And, um, well, I'll see you next time. Or I'll see you at a tour show. Ta-ra. Thank you.